I have two cans of Michigan's favorite carbonated beverage, La Croix. <laughs> That's Michigan's favorite carbonated beverage? It's not no. Wisconsin's favorite carbonated beverage? Isn't it based on, I thought it was, they stole the water from here. Nestle takes Michigan's water. I don't know if the company's based in Michigan, though. Oh, I, I thought it was bottled in Eau Claire. Oh, is or it? maybe I just I, thought that because the town is named Eau Claire. Oh, yeah. I used to live in Eau Claire, and the only thing of note in Eau Claire is the Leinenkugels <laughs> brewery, which well, is cool. See? They use a lot of water, so it would make sense. <laughs> they well, sure and, do. I mean, what is it called? It's like clear water or something like that. Uh is like what the actual translation of that is. And yeah, that's what it is. One of the old, yeah. It's one. It is one of the only places where I don't remember being told as a kid that we could not swim in the in the in the river. <laughs> that might have changed by now. Probably has. But yeah, yeah. Well, it's also one of the only places where I could walk into a gas station at 19, looking like I was 15, and buy <laughs> beer without any problems. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, uh, that that's actually one of the things that's so interesting about like New England being made up of so many very small states compared like, you know, compared to the rest of the country mm-hmm. is that you get those all those regional like differences in like liquor laws that you see around the country but like condensed so that to the point where like everybody can just drive to the other states to get around those mm-hmm. laws. So it's like down here in in or like well in Connecticut anyway, it's like, no, there's the package store. That's the only place you can go. And they're like heavily restricted on their hours. And then in Maine, where I, where I grew up, it's just like, yeah, you just buy whatever at the, the gas station. It's fine. Yeah. So, so Maine is Michigan and, uh, yeah. Connecticut is Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That, that is registering to my rust belt ass brain. Uh, it's really but no, interesting it, that in that such that, uh, condensed area where the laws are, are varying. It, it's really just like it's only illegal if you don't own a car. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Actually, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's probably why New Hampshire still hasn't passed uh, legal marijuana. But before we move on and I do the intro, I would like to note that as most Michiganders listening to the show will be furiously screaming at their phone right now, Michigan's favorite beverages are obviously Verner's and Fago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Fago, huh? Yeah, Fago. Well, this is where the Juggalos are like from. This is the capital of white guys rapping in the country. (laughs) 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 Or at least it used to be. It probably I bet it's like Fort Lauderdale or something now. Um, No, now it's 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 wherever Chet Hanks is. That's so Jamaica (laughs) mostly. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah. Culture Commentary Podcast. My name is John. I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported show, so if you support us on on Patreon, thank you so very much. It really does go a very long way. Uh, Hop in the Discord if you're not already in there. That is the one place where you can join the reading group. And what are they covering right now, Lena? I'm sorry. Uh, I think that they are right now, they just picked out a text, and uh, and they're going to be going over Confronting Reality, Learning from the History of Our Movement by the Bay Area Socialist Organizing Committee, a book or a text from 1981. 
And they just recently moved the time. I think it is uh, Tuesday at 9.30 p.m. right now. But uh, jump in the reading group channel to learn more about that. Hell yeah. Well, that sounds really awesome. So if you're interested in that, hop in the Discord. That's the only place you can access that reading group. Uh, if you're a patron and you need stickers, message us on Patreon and we will get them to you. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or just mention us to your local Fago dealer. <laughs> yeah, but so real quick, right before we dive into the stories, I just wanted to issue a very short correction because one of our listeners, uh, uh, one of our friends from the Labor Radio Podcast Network, uh, pointed out that I made a mistake when I uh, recently talked about SAG-AFTRA. I was talking about the fact that you know the two main uh, political movements within the union have both lined up behind Fran Drescher as the leader of the union right now, which is really big for the unity of the union as they approach potentially joining the WGA on strike. But the mistake that I made was I had mentioned that the two slates were largely aligned based on the two previous parts of the union, SAG and AFTRA. And that's not true. Uh, I misinterpreted that from the article. They are not based on that. They are just, you know, two different slates that you would see like in any other union that are, are aligned primarily around the issues. It's not just like a SAG slate and an AFTRA slate. So I, I just wanted to thank our listener for correcting that and uh, just wanted to make that correction. And and so just continuing on that same vein, though, in the same industry, just wanted to make a quick uh, shout out to the Animation Guild, who, who just won a big victory uh, this past week. We had previously discussed on the show the difficulties that uh, animators have faced getting the same level of union membership and protection as so many of the other workers in the film and TV industry. And part of that has been the rapid expansion of animation studios beyond the, you know, traditional, quote unquote, traditional homes of film and TV production in the U.S., New York and L.A. Of course, production happens all over the country, but those have been the traditional centers. And that's where the unions have largely been set up. Now, Unfortunately, there has been a huge push by a lot of animation studios to move to right-to-work states like Texas to avoid unionization. And there's been a long process by the Animation Guild to try and get the same union protections as the rest of the workers in the film and TV industry. And there has recently been a big victory there. On Thursday, July 6th, the Guild announced that Powerhouse Animation, an animation studio based in Texas, has voluntarily recognized the choice of their workers to be represented by the Animation Guild. And that makes them the first stu animation studio in Texas to be unionized, which is a big victory for both these workers specifically, of course, but for animation workers all over the country because it demonstrates that even in a right-to-work state with a viciously anti-labor government, and even in an industry full uh, of outsourcing to evade labor codes, it is possible to win these sorts of victories if workers are willing to get organized, fight, and if their community is there to support them. So congratulations to these workers, and I hope we're going to be seeing a lot more of these wins all over the country. Hell yeah, that's really big, especially because, uh, like as you said, animation has been trending towards right-to-work states. Turner Broadcasting does most of their animation production in Georgia, which is a mm. right-to-work state. And what they don't do in Georgia, they typically uh, contract out to South Korea. But that is another country where we've been seeing a huge upsurge in the labor movement. So hopefully animators will be able to get theirs all over the world. 
Yeah. Well, and then in our next follow-up, last week we discussed uh, the major strike of 15,000 hotel workers in L.A. uh, over the fourth weekend in July. Uh, Originally, they had taken a little break from that, but as of today, they have actually announced that they are going to be picking up their strike again. Originally, the when they were taking their break uh, on the Wednesday following the end of the long weekend, Unite Here 11, uh, Local 11 workers uh, had ended their strike and returned to work. Um, and, you know, they threatened that they were going to return. Well, now we know for a fact that they did or are, are literally going to be doing that. Uh, when was that? Uh, is they picking that back up today or, is, or tomorrow? Yeah, so this is the peek behind the curtain on the difficulty of running a news show when news continues to happen during our recording. <laughs> um, yeah, so when I wrote the, the notes for this last week, the workers had paused their strike, basically aiming to focus on the most consequential days of the long weekend when there was going to be the maximum amount of damage caused by the strike, then pausing it so that the damage would not, you know, continue to accrue for the workers as well, and then restarting it when there was another event. Uh, and so uh, on last Wednesday, the, uh, so that would be the 5th of July, they paused their strike. And then today, uh, Monday, uh, the 10th, they have restarted it. Um, so at the time... Uh, Kurt Peterson, uh, who's co-president of Local 11, had said, quote, This walkout was the first of many actions that may come this summer by workers at hotels across Southern California, and it is only one tool in our toolbox. We've put the industry on notice that the workers have suffered enough, end quote. And they also put us on notice <laughs> by calling for a pause and then four days later starting it back up, which is is fantastic. They're keeping, you know, these businesses, you know, on the back foot by they really don't know, like, when are these strikes going to come? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, notably, when uh, the strike was paused, their spokesperson even said to the Washington Post, quote, we don't know what that means, which is like, <laughs> the, if, if anybody's been listening to the uh, Overtime Cybernetics series, that's so great. Honestly, that's correct, where you're just yeah. like, we paused it. We're not sure what the deal is right now. And uh, the deal apparently was, we're going to resume it. And we, I love that for them. <laughs> we love just increasing variety to the point where the bosses can't handle it. Yeah, exactly. If the boss doesn't know what you're going to do next, you have an advantage. Well, and to to clarify, that spokesperson who said we don't know what that means is the spokesperson for the hotels, Mm -hmm. Uh, not like the the union. So, like, yeah, they're just like, so they told us they're pausing the strike, but we don't... We don't actually understand what that means, which is just great. Cause yeah, like, uh, and, and so they were just like, well, uh, we don't really understand, but we do want workers back so that we can have our hotels operating at full capacity. And so they welcomed everybody back and they were able to get along to the business. But now just after four days of that, <laughs> the strike has been relaunched, which is vital because, you know, while the workers of course made a huge difference by striking over those, those four days in, in, at the, in the 4th of July weekend, that did not, or in so far has not secured contract wins for a lot. So it, by continuing this rolling, they're able to, as you were saying, like by adding this variety and not just being, you know, a continuous strike, but a broken up one like this, it's keeping them on their toes while also giving these workers who are so underpaid an opportunity 
to have these breaks where they can go back and, and, and earn some more money on top of, you know, what they're getting from their strike fund and be able to, you know, pay their bills and minimize the, the damage to them while still massively disrupting the ability of these hotels to cater to various events that are tied to those key dates and can't move. Yeah, well, and it's, it's also a display of power, basically, saying, like, look, we're in charge of what days we show up for work. So that's how it is. Yeah. Well, and I do want to apologize to uh, listeners who aren't patrons and don't understand what we're talking about with variety. There are lots of places to learn about cybernetics, and one of them is patreon.com slash workstoppage. <laughs> but to get to our next follow-up, we need to talk about refresco workers. Now, longtime listeners will kind of remember because we covered this over a year ago there was a union drive uh by the workers at the bottling plant company uh or the yeah the bottling company and uh originally they had won their election and then uh the company decided that they were going to challenge that for what reason because the polls opened five minutes late literally five minutes late yeah, so that's some Peggy Hill ass rules lawyering. And then mm-hmm. we had uh, our favorite uh, branch of the government, the judicial system, decide. You know what? Yeah, that election is null and void. Now we have to have another. Well, as we also covered a while back, they won that one with an even larger margin. Mm-hmm. And so since then, they have been uh, they have been negotiating, and they have actually won their first contract after such a long struggle with so many stupid fucking hiccups from all of these union-busting bosses and judges. Yeah, this is basically like over a three-year effort by these workers to finally win a fair union contract at their employer, which, you know, it's a really long time, but one of the things that I want to underline is that, like, a big part of why... Uh, companies use all of these union busting tactics. Of course, there's the individual purpose of going after the individual workers. But a big part of it, from when you step back more broadly, is to s- is to send out the signal to workers across the whole country that, like, look, you can try this unionizing thing, but it's going to take you forever. And you are really, you're never going to get a contract. You may get your union, but you're never going to get a contract. And that's why it's so important that you have unions like the UE here who will stand by these workers for three years until they're able to get that contract. Because if every one of these wins is a big hole in that idea that you can't, you know, go out there and organize with your, your coworkers and win your union and win a contract, a contract with some pretty transformative wins in it too. And so, but before we get into the wins of this contract, one of the things, like, just to characterize this uh, employer and just the conditions that these workers were facing that really prompted so many of them to want to organize in the first place, which is that at the beginning of the pandemic, again, these are workers at, like, a sports drink bottling company. So, like, they bottle things like, you know, Gatorade and sodas and other stuff, which is important. But they were classed as essential workers and forced to work while many of them had covid Mm-hmm. And this is basically with the full knowledge of the company's management and the government that they were forcing these workers into an unsafe environment with insufficient PPE uh, that where many of them were going to get sick. And Refresco management told these workers, quote, Homeland Security and the CDC has told us they want us to stay open. And the first thing they tell you to do if you get a fever, 
is to let it break, and they suggest you drink Gatorade, end quote. Here's an interesting idea. Homeland Security should not have jurisdiction over labor relations. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And boy, is it revealing that you, you, people would even think that they could. <laughs> yeah. Also, like, they're literally hawking their own products to mm-hmm. the fucking workers as a cure-all, some fucking bullshit capitalist, like, uh, pseudo-medicine nonsense in the just for the excuse of continuing to work workers in horrible conditions i mean that is what led to their uh original walkout in march of 2020 yeah absolutely so it's really gratifying to see these workers finally get their contract and they've got some big wins in it too they won immediate raises for all employees and so uh, you the ue actually put out some more information about it today uh, this is ue uh, local 115 in wharton new jersey specifically and in the the new contract, workers, depending on you know seniority, how long they've been there, they'll see pay raises of between ten and twenty percent in the next two years. So That's you're pretty good. Yeah, um, they also want additional raises for veteran workers who have been with the company for eight years or more, uh, and which is, has been a big one is one of the big organizing issues because veteran workers have had their pay kind of uh, top out at a ceiling, and so. They've been working for years and years and years without raises, and this is finally breaking that deadlock. Uh, they, workers also won payment for unused sick and vacation time, which I thought was just a, a, a law, but I think it's a state law in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Um, they won higher bonus pay for overtime. They won increased paid holidays. They won protection against being made to work on days off and bonus pay for whenever they're asked to train other workers as well. And critically, they want an end to the mandatory use of 10-hour shifts, which was another big goal of the workers. And so, I mean, these are huge wins. And like though, like a 20% raise in two years, like that's not 20% over, you know, a six-year contract. That's, that's big. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's really rare to see uh, increments of like this high of a wage as well as this level of like uh, gains in terms of like, quality of of work and and changing the schedule and everything so yeah i mean it's important to remember that you can you can achieve not just like i don't know people have this idea that unionizing is how you get an extra dollar an hour and it's like no it's how you stop working 10 hour days Mm -hmm. yeah also and i mean like we have to take into consideration like this is a big win uh and we really hope that future contracts keep this sort of higher rate uh, and that the company doesn't just use this as an excuse of, oh, we're just making up for some lost time. Because that's kind of what is happening with this contract, is they're making up for some lost time. But uh, with the UE being such a militant rank-and-file union, I have a lot of hope for them. And so congratulations to all of their uh, all these workers and their efforts. Yeah. And as long as we're talking about really big wins, let's talk about sticking it right in Starbucks's face, which is always a lot of fun. So Starbucks fucking lost again in court. They took an enormous L uh, with a major <laughs> ruling that came this last week documenting a veritable cornucopia of illegal activities by the <laughs> Coffee Crime Syndicate. Uh, a federal judge ruled that Starbucks in Pittsburgh found that the uh, company had established no clear basis for why they fired two workers except for their advocacy for the union and ordered them to be 
immediately rehired and provided back pay. And in a technically legally correct, but uh, uh, also typically quite understated point, in, in the judge spoke in judge speak, stating, quote, regarding effects bargaining, Starbucks fired three of the members of the union's effects bargaining team. This appears to be less than coincidental, or put another way, a whopping 60% firing rate for the effects bargaining team seems more like a purge than an even-handed practice, end quote. And uh, I mean, like, yeah, again, that's right, but also, like, he's leaving so much, like, credulousness in there mm-hmm. that he's like, mm, this is just so suspicious. We I really have to whack my finger at this one. If we were to deduce, based on these percentages, we might have to come to the conclusion of, due to the law... <laughs> Yeah, I really I wanted to read his quote like in the um that other bird lawyer from Harvey Birdman. Where he, <laughs> you know, regarding effects bargaining bargaining team, this appears to be less than coincidental. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the whole thing, it's like I feel like this whole really because I was reading through it, and he does like kind of it's so funny because the judge is clearly like, Well, this is all very highly irregular. Like that's the general tone of it. Like, like genuinely surprised. It's like, well, wait, the company it can't just go break the law. <laughs> it's like, Your Honor, I, I hate to inform you if this is perhaps your first day where you've fallen off the turnip truck and onto the bar. <laughs> but this is gonna be all your cases <laughs> around labor violations. <laughs> But yeah. um, so I mean, like ultimately, the company is forced to rehire the workers who are illegally fired for organizing. Also, they have to post notices about labor law around Pittsburgh area stores and agree to cease and desist illegal activities. Although we know that uh, we can just pull the Arthur meme out here because Starbucks is going to say that sign won't stop me because I can't read. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing I love better than being ordered to cease and desist illegal activities. I mean, <laughs> gosh, it happens all the time to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it, uh, yeah, it's just like, man, they, they were the ones who just did the illegal activities. <laughs> like, they know they're illegal. <laughs> but anyways. Yeah, uh, we do have a statement from the union who said, quote, Time is ticking, Starbucks, and the longer you continue your anti-union crusade, the more the public will learn about your truly heinous actions against workers. It's not too late to stop now, do the right thing, and come to the bargaining table in good faith, end quote. But unfortunately, (laughs) we've also seen all over the country that, of course, Starbucks is unlikely to do that unless forced. But we've seen another ruling... Uh, that might take a step towards doing some of that, at least in one town. So we've talked a lot on the show about the saga of the Starbucks workers of Ithaca, New York, Mm -hmm. uh, which was, of course, the first city in the country, even if a very small one, to have all of their Starbucks standalone locations be unionized at the same time, which was extremely cool, Uh, which is also pretty obviously uh, enraged (laughs) the company and made the town a target of their ire and their flagrant illegal union busting. And so we, we talked a few weeks ago about the fact that Starbucks decided to just go nuclear and shut down all of their stores in Ithaca for quote unquote business reasons, uh, which, uh, business reasons is, is just, uh, legal speak for, uh, illegal reasons that I can't state openly, 
uh, because it would be illegal. They tried <laughs> to make a union, a Stalinist union, so I took <laughs> my beans and I went home. <laughs> this is what I say when I get caught stealing at the grocery store, is I need this for business reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, <laughs> if it's a Staples, it's at least probably true. Um, <laughs> but this week... That case finally came before a federal judge who surprisingly actually understood that the business reasons is uh, just nonsense. And, and a federal judge actually ruled that the closure of the store was clearly, as it was obvious to us and any other workers, that it was obviously illegal retaliation for the union efforts at the store. And, and so Josh Idelson, who reported this for Bloomberg, I think he was like the first one on the story, uh, reported that the judge stated that the store's closure, quote, was done lar- in large part to discourage unionization efforts in Ithaca and elsewhere, end quote. You know, kidding. He said Starbucks failed to prove that it would close the store, quote, absent its animus towards the pro-union employees who work there, end quote. And he also pointed out that the company flaunted its impunity to the law, saying, quote, suggesting to an employee it would continue to violate the act regardless of what the NLRB decided. End quote. Wow. Which, well, that's just being honest. <laughs> yes. Um, and so because of all of that, the judge ruled that the company did, in fact, illegally retaliate against the workers by closing the store and that that was the primary reason for its closure and that therefore its closure was illegal and that the company must immediately reopen the College Avenue location in Ithaca, rehire the workers that they fired from that location or were going to fire, pay the workers that were laid off their their back pay and post notices about labor law at all Starbucks stores. Ima- so imagine the conversations between these baristas and the customers who come in when the store reopens. And the customers are like, what the heck happened? And the baristas are like, you're going to want to order first because it's going to take a minute to explain this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, this rocks, but... Uh, I will say, like, this is basically, like, this and, you know, a bargaining order are really, like, the ultimate thing, really, that administrative law judges have the authority to do in these cases. They, they And and this is good. Like, this is a, a good thing. We're very happy about it. But the fact that it has to be done store by store and that there is no penalty whatsoever for Starbucks' continued refusal to break the law. Every one of these is like it's the first time that they've done anything wrong. Yeah, it's and like, so it's, do these judges even watch the news? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they do, but I, I think this is also one of those judge brain things where they're just like, well, the, the law says. And it's just like, well, yeah, okay, man, but like you got a habitual offender here. <laughs> like this guy, these are not habitual line steppers. Like they are fully over the line in every state in the country. I, I think constantly. We, should, we should force one judge to rule on all of the Starbucks cases. And that way, by the time you get to like the 10th case, he's like, what the fuck is wrong with this company? <laughs> right? No, I mean, exactly. But ultimately it, it's, like we're we're gonna keep reporting on these stories, but the the reason that you know I have this like hedging about the the these cases because it's great that they they force them to reopen the store, but these cases I think just continue to underline that what's gonna win better conditions for workers at Starbucks, what's gonna ultimately force Starbucks to stop this just ridiculous illegal scorched earth campaign against its workers, 
is the direct action by the union. It's going to mm -hmm. be things like the strike nationwide over pride decorations. It's going to be things like the upcoming bus tour yeah. that the union is going on nationwide, which is extremely cool and dope. What is it? The the back of it says, this union is bussin'? Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm told is a, a, a slang term used by the youth nowadays. It's actually <laughs> honestly kind of an old meme at this point, but it's fine. It checks out. <laughs> I'm happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's the union that's going to solve these problems. Well, I'm, we're happy to have, you know, any of these piecemeal here and there administrative law judge rulings. But ultimately, the fact that these are piecemeal is why we have to throw all our support behind Starbucks Workers United. Well, and the fact that unions are the things that actually hold, you know, truth to power and like actually make things happen is kind of a reason why we're talking in the next story, because, uh, you know, as we know, labor organizing is very difficult. But in many places around the world, it's actually also incredibly dangerous for one example, uh, reported by The Guardian out of Bangladesh, where uh, there was a prominent labor organizer who was murdered in broad daylight after standing up for textile workers so that they could be paid. Textile production in Southeast Asia is massively profitable. For major Western clothing firms, as well as those local factory owners who they hire to super exploit the poor workers... For them, labor organizing is a threat to the comfortable livelihoods they've built out of the blood, sweat, and tears of these textile workers. Uh, Shahidul Islam was a labor organizer for the Bangladesh Garment and Industrial Workers Federation who stood up for workers in this hyper-exploitative sector for years. He and other organizers had recently been called to the Prince Jakard sweater factory on the outskirts of Dhaka uh, to help the workers there with a pay dispute. It is extremely common for these fast fashion industries uh, to, you know, employ these practices. The workers who actually make these clothes uh, for the major companies make these companies billions uh, while often get not getting paid or, you know, getting very little pay. Uh, the workers called for help from organizers multiple times at the factory as the bosses tried to delay and avoid paying workers for as long as possible. According to Ahmad Sharif, another organizer who worked with Islam, uh, the company had promised to pay the workers by Sunday, June 25th, and when that didn't happen, the workers called for assistance from Islam and Sharif. Unable to secure an agreement for the bosses, uh, agreement, uh, from the bosses to pay the workers, Islam announced that he would escalate the matter to the Department of Factory Inspection and Establishment. When he and the workers moved to leave the gate, he was ambushed. A mob waiting at the gate grabbed him, uh, grabbed Islam and Sharif, separated them from the crowd, and viciously assaulted them. By the time the workers were able to pull Islam away from the attackers, he was unconscious. He later died of his injuries that evening. The police say that they have arrested one suspect, but while the murderers should be held accountable, it's the factory owners who hired them and are the ultimate culprits in, you know, this brutal murder. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, it's extremely unlikely that they will be the ones actually held accountable. Like, obviously, you know, if you arrest and lock up the guys who actually did it, I mean, that's some 
sense of semblance of justice, I suppose. But it's like it this wasn't a random mob. Like these guys were hired to go after labor organizers because like well, obviously it's, you know, it's H&M, it's the Gap, it's and it, and the private equity companies and the gigantic billionaires that fund those companies. That are the all that are ultimately responsible for this, but the next layer below that as well, like, you know, the 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 comp basically, you know, the comprador bourgeoisie, uh the the business owners within these neo-colonial countries which who work as agents of the Western bourgeoisie are also really some of the most directly responsible for this level of violence because they are the ones on the ground doing that exploitation. Like the, the actual like Western companies have that level of detachment by hiring these factories out as contracts. And so there's a lot of these places that take it like a direct threat to their livelihood when they see workers organizing. And we see horrific cases like this where they're willing to hire people to murder labor organizers to stop workers from getting paid, not even from like forming a union and making the wage they deserve. Not even that. Just getting paid what they are literally owed by their nowhere near sufficient labor contract from their like sub poverty worse. Like this is in Bangladesh. These wages are atrocious. Like that's the whole reason why these, these companies do their production there is because they, they're able to, through the system of imperialism, get away with paying just absolute rock bottom wages to these workers who deserve so much more. And it takes a huge amount of like, not just, you know, organizational skill, not just tenacity, not just dedication, but bravery and courage for people to do this work in places like this, places like the Philippines, places even like South Korea, which are held up as, you know, bastions of democracy thanks to America. It is a dangerous place in so many of these countries to be a labor organizer. And in large part, it's the places that are most dominated by U.S. imperialism where workers face the highest level of violence. Yeah, and I think that that kind of separation that you were talking about where these companies like H&M and Gap have their kind of uh, buffer, oh, it's the company that did it, we're not responsible. We're not going to actually see anything from them. They're not going to cut ties. They're not going to do anything about this. They're not going to wag their finger probably even. They're just going to continue to, you know, profit and exploit these workers semi-indirectly. Actually, it's still pretty direct, but, you know, they're just going to continue that practice and they're going to pretend that nothing happened. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, I mean, the thing is, is like they're trying to hide behind the thinnest possible veneer of a fabricated version of this story that you could even come up with because Islam had worked as an organizer for over 25 years, a quarter of a century, helping literally thousands of workers resolve grievances and secure the pay to uh, that they were owed. So he was a known quantity, and the idea that this was anything other than a targeted attack is just absolutely ridiculous. Although I'm sure uh, a law judge could figure out a way to be like, well, uh, absent the animosity, blah, blah, blah. But fellow trade union activists had said uh, that he had been targeted for violence before, and they believed that this was an attempt to intimidate and silence all organizers in the area. They are clearly correct, as this mob was obviously hired by the owners of the factory to try and get out of paying their workers, uh, something that we've seen in a lot of stories that we covered um the the targeting of the shack dwellers movement and the organizers mm -hmm. at clover dairy come to mind mm -hmm. in particular oh yeah 
That story, I, I'm glad you mentioned that one. I, when they had the guys coming out and literally whipping people with belts. Yeah, they like showed up in vans or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, no, ridiculous. It's, yeah, it's 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 rough out there for organizers in a lot of places. And that's not to say that it's not rough out there here in the U.S. It is. I mean, look at the people who have got hit by cars. Mm-hmm. That happens all the time now. So it's dangerous here too. But like for these. For workers in these these countries that are dominated by imperialism, it there does tend to be that level. Like yeah, like the shack dwellers are. I mean, they've faced like a dozen plus people murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, like it's really really dangerous and difficult work out there. And the people that are going out there and doing that, I mean, he devoted basically his whole adult life to doing this, and that is a heroic effort. And 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 so like while this is 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 awful, and it it absolutely is. I was at least, you know, inspired by the fact that, you know, the workers have taken this as a rallying cry. Like, obviously, they're horrified by this, but basically they, they want to build off the legacy that that Shaidul Islam, you know, really was putting together as an organizer. And and hundreds of workers and, and his friends and family members marched in his honor following the news of his death. And uh, Dali Akhtar, who's a, a fellow trade union activist, told The Guardian, quote, we will not rest until the perpetrators are brought to justice. We've been on the streets before. Now we lost one of our own. We will show them the power of our unity. Yeah. So solidarity with these workers and, and all of the labor organizers out there doing the incredibly dangerous work, uh, you know, that can literally cost you your life, but is also one of the only ways that we can build the worker power we need to build a society where people are no longer getting killed for fighting for their rights at work. Yeah. Well, back to the U.S., we need to talk about ways that, again, the judicial system is wielded against workers. Uh, At the University of California, the administration there has caused workers there to be charged with felonies for drawing chalk. Yeah. Um this story is wild. <laughs> and if they stick with this, like <laughs> if they they stick to this plan, the administration of UC and we'll get into the details of it. Like this is an enormous escalation and the sort of thing that frankly is only going to accelerate in in my view. Uh, the unionization of every single university in in this country if they keep this up. So this is a wild story where folks probably, I'm sure folks remember uh, the, the, the end of last year, the giant, the biggest strike in the country all year, the workers at the University of California system, 50,000 strong who went on strike for several weeks against that system to get better uh, pay, better benefits, all of the things that we see grad student workers fighting across the country for. It huge moment, made big headlines. The workers, you know, across the whole system had a whole lot of very creative tactics, including uh, a mobile picket on kayaks at one point to, that they took to a gated private island. So, you know, the workers used a lot of creativity. And clearly the administrators are still extremely mad, <laughs> about the fact that these workers, A, had the temerity to go on strike in the first place, and B, had the, the uh, audacity to actually uh, win <laughs> the strike. And now they're trying to get back at the union in any way that they can, even these absolutely absurd ways. So there were several workers who were 
trying to call to attention the fact that the University of California has not been really living up to the requirements of the new contract that workers won from that strike. And so the workers took chalk and washable paint, again, washable paint, not regular paint, and they wrote living wage now on the side of a concrete building on the San Diego UC campus. And in response to that, (laughs) the school has charged the three graduate students who did this art protest with felony vandalism and conspiracy had the three students arrested at their homes and had had them held overnight on $20,000 bail had their electronic devices sieged sieged and are now you know not only putting their academic futures at risk but like a lot of the rest of their future because being tagged with a felony and actually like actually getting convicted for it can be completely life altering in this country. Yeah, I I'm kind of uh, at a loss for words almost with how absolutely absurd it is that you could get uh, even just a minor vandalism charge for washable chalk or paint, but to say that they get felony conspiracy, I I I cannot. I mean. Yeah, it's it's just a deranged level of escalation and totally uncalled for. I mean, we did hear from Rafael Jaime, president of the UAW Local 2865, who wrote for In These Times about the myriad ways that the university has been trying to get out of the new contracts won by workers during their recent strike. They have, writing, quote, they failed to pay many of us our raises, canceled promotions, and given new postdocs appointments half as long as the contract calls for. When workers have filed grievances, they've sometimes labeled them ineligible for processing and spent months stalling, end quote. And also, while the workers protested the school's refusal to stick to the contract with some chalk writing, the school retaliated with these outrageous felony charges. Yeah, I mean, that's also that's another thing that's extremely common just generally, but I... I would love to see a study on this, although I don't even really know how you would study it. But the use of this sort of like death by bureaucracy sort of like way of breaking your contract law um, where you don't necessarily tell the workers we're not going to pay you. You tell them, oh, well, we tried to process your paperwork to pay you, but it came up as ineligible for processing. So I'm really not sure what's going on there. We'll try and get that sorted out for you, though. And you just leave it open and you never actually do anything. And Mm -hmm. so you have this sort of plausible deniability that it's just the bureaucratic machine that's broken. And, and, and so like, I would, what I would love to see is like the prevalence of something like that specifically at academia. Cause I get a sense that it's a very like academic way to try to do something like this, to try to avoid that like direct confrontation with the worker. We have to actually have to tell them mm-hmm. that you're, you're going to be breaking the law and instead being like, no, I'm going to use this, this, this like bureaucratic system to, to put up a firewall between me and the worker. So I don't have to talk to them and deal with the, you know, person to person ramifications of me being a piece of shit. Right. Well, and like this behavior by the university is part of an extremely long pattern of retaliation. 
uh, because obviously they're really pissed off about the idea that like the workers might have some say in their workplace. Uh, so following the successful strike by the student workers, uh, many researchers were given unsatisfactory grades in retaliation, and 60 students were hit with student conduct charges for protests conducted during the strike. The school claimed that it costs $12,000 to clean up the water-soluble vandalism, quote-unquote vandalism, which is either a ridiculous lie or an excuse by the school to give slush fund money to a contractor that they know I would believe either one. Washable paint and chalk, obviously, you just spray them off with a hose. 90 cents worth of water takes care of this. Yeah, I threw this in here, you know, as a project manager who handles uh, relationships with contractors and prices for things like like this sort of thing. Uh, bullshit, it costs $12,000 to clean up. I have seen some ridiculous bills from contractors. Because trust me, b- construction contractors, building contractors, whoever you have to go out for this sort of thing, love to rip you off <laughs> uh, and, and overcharge the shit out of you. $12,000 to spray some chalk off of a building? No. If you spent $12,000 on that, you gave $11,000 to the owner of the company. They gave like $600 to the person who did it. And then like $400 like was a kickback to like whoever Mm -hmm. gave it to them. Like that is, that is complete. Either they made that number up or like this is just graft. (laughs) So it's just adding insult to injury with all this bullshit. Yeah. Um, I mean, we also have a quote from William Schneider, one of the uh, grad students who was charged, who told local news KPBS, quote, This is, in my opinion, very clearly part of a larger coordinated crackdown of union activities across the UC. UC has systematically tried to renege on the contract they sign with UAW and the Graduate Student Researchers Union, end quote. Um, and it's very clear. I mean, like they're on the ground, they know, they know when you have like, when you're in the union, if you've been there for any period of time, you can spot retaliation from a mile away. And I mean, you can just trust this worker when they say this is part of a crackdown. Yeah. Well, and of course, you know, the university comes out and it's just like, no, it's not that they're just being ridiculous, except for the fact that it's only the students that ever have that burden of evidence. Like, the the school could come out and lie about the students all day, every day. Nobody in the media is ever going to hold, hold them to account, ever call them out for it, ever. But if the students, you know, make up this bullshit then the, the, about this, and then the school comes out and says, aha, see, we can prove that they are not telling the truth, then every single time the union says anything for the next, like, five years, the media will bring that shit back up and say, well, why should we listen to them? They exaggerated this X, Y, Z thing. So, like, it but is really... But also, that never happens. It never happens. Like No, because the workers are never lying. <laughs> <laughs> like, no matter how many times Capital and all of its puppets uh, want to, like... Or or crow or like you know you know the the boots that are that are out there doing the work for capital like whenever they try to pull this bullshit you can't find evidence of unions lying in fact very often I think that uh, there is uh, I don't think I put it in the later story but there's a story later about the it's like oh the union has been uh, lying about to the workers and it's just like you have literally no evidence that the union was lying. 
Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. And, but thankfully, you know, the students are fighting back and refusing to be intimidated by UC and their basically use of state repression to try and, and, and crush any, you know, uh, enthusiasm that could have come off of the big strike from last year. They've continued to file and escalate grievances for the school's refusal to live up to the contract. They've also vowed to continue protests until all their contractually owed wages are paid and to fight until these ridiculous charges against these three workers are dropped entirely. Good. I mean, it's necessary. These, this is absolutely, again, yeah, ridiculous charges is, is very accurate. Now, as for something uh, i guess something that deserves pretty legitimate charges i do want to give people a warning about this next story because it is about the death of a, of a kid um so on july 1st uh 16 year old michael or mikey Schulz uh died at the hands of florence hardwood logging company after he had been in the hospital for two days the young boy was working in a sawmill uh, at this company's northern Wisconsin, in northern Wisconsin, near the Michigan UP border, uh, he was reported unresponsive at 6:51 a.m. on Thursday, the 29th, uh, according to a county sheriff press release. Uh, there aren't any details. I mean, I I wrote this up yesterday, so I mean, maybe there are more details now, but there are not really any details about how this quote industrial accident happened. And that's how all of the news, I want to talk a little bit about how the news is reporting this too, because so much of this is, uh, he died during a quote industrial accident, Mm -hmm. not providing any blame to Florence Hardwood's logging company at all for what they have done which is put a 16-year-old in a sawmill and that 16-year-old died like i i i i'm kind of, i'm just really mad about this because it's ridiculous that this sort of thing should happen but this is also a product of so much of the modern legislation that we've been talking about and and so i kind of want to talk just just briefly about that uh, so we, we have a little quote cause there's a, a couple ar- articles in here. Almost all of the articles are like three paragraphs. There's no, they, they don't want to provide very much context. The one that I got the most context out of was the guardian where they spoke to, uh, skip Mark, a university of Rhode Island professor who specializes in labor and human rights, uh, who was noting the prevalence of child labor in uh, the country's agricultural industry to The Guardian, who said, quote, The U.S. Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 helped limit child labor in many ways. However, it did and still does not apply to the agricultural sector where most child labor in the U.S. and most child injuries and deaths occur. Child labor is most common in agriculture where children are maimed, killed, exposed to dangerous chemicals, underpaid, and we've known about these issues for decades. Child labor is hard to measure, and most estimates are terrible and should not be taken at face value. Governments don't want to report on how bad child labor is because it makes them look bad. Businesses don't want to report that they have hired children because they would have to pay fines. Children and their parents don't want to report child labor because 
they need the job to support themselves and would lose their job if it were to become reported, end quote. And and I just want to like comment on that part there for a sec because that's something that always comes up with these. So really, anytime you talk about child labor at all, but especially this sort of case, is you'll get people who say, well, yeah, the company shouldn't have hired them, but ultimately it's the parents' fault for sending their kid to go work in a dangerous environment or whatever. They should have worked 120 hours a week or, you know, because that's the thing. No parent whose kid goes to work in a dangerous place like this is not already working like 90 hours a week, like to the point where they are probably like dangerously exhausted and should not be driving a vehicle. Like nobody wants, nobody wants to send their child to work in a fucking sawmill. Even the owner of the fucking saw, probably especially the owner of the fucking sawmill, unless his work at the mill is sit in the construction trailer with their dad or whatever. Uh, not actually doing any of the work like this child was. But like so much of this is always turned back on the parents and on the kid themselves about like, well, they they chose. That's always what it is. It's they chose to go work in the sawmill or whatever. They didn't have to do that. We, and they'll be like, we have free school for all these people. Because it's, it's this, it, you hear the same thing like when we talk about the child labor of, of Guatemalan immigrant kids that has been happening all over this country and like with the Packer sanitation and all these other things. It always comes back to they chose to do that. And that is, of course, the same lie that is at the basis of the capitalist system the whole fucking time. This idea that you have a choice to work or starve. It's like, that's not, that's like me going up to somebody in an, or like somebody going up to you in an alley and pointing a gun at you and saying, give me your money or your life and telling you, hey, I gave you a choice. <laughs> like, that's not a fucking choice. And it, that is recognized legally that that's not a choice. If you go mug someone, you're not like, you don't get off because you gave them an option. And it's the same thing here where our system is purposefully set up to force children into labor because they can be more easily exploited than adults generally and thus make more and more profits for the same ghouls that operate our whole system. For the same people ultimately that are responsible for the deaths of labor organizers all over the world because they are, you know, the, the, the rulers of the United States, the ruling class, the rich, the billionaires, you know, the people who spend all of their money donating to the two parties who send Clarence Thomas and, and, and Justice Alito off on expensive crab fishing, you know, uh, trips in Alaska so that they'll vote the way that they want them to on Supreme Court cases. That... Those are the people whose kids are never going to work in any of these places that they say are build so much character. It, it, it's this whole thing. It's like the way that people are able to wrap it up in this choice discourse is, is maddening to me because people have figured out a way to blame kids for their own deaths from working in a fucking sawmill. And I like, don't understand how people live with themselves making those arguments. And yet it is so common and I just, I know I've kind of gone around in circles on this, but it's like, I don't think it can be repeated enough. That is not a real choice. No one chooses to go do this. 
as a child. They do it because they have to. And they have to because this country does not support people. It, we, our society is built to extract the, every drop of labor they can get out of you and then fucking throw you into a wood chipper so that they can sell your remains for even more profit. Like, that, that is the, what created the ch- choice, supposedly, that caused this kid to be there. And it's, <laughs> I mean, it's not just the, I, I just, it's not just the people who caused this specifically, like the owner of the sawmill, the managers, everybody who was in the chain of command that allowed this to happen, who, you know, are responsible for this death. And they, they are, and they should be held responsible for it. But the propagandists who downplay this stuff, I almost get like even like more mad at because I'm like, you know what the fuck you're saying and you are covering for it anyway. And I, I just, I know it's idealist to, to, to complain about this, but at a certain point, I, always, I just, I, I don't understand how people live with themselves like with this shit. I, I just don't even know. And to your point, when it comes to the way that the ruling class is continuing to try to exacerbate this exploitation we can't forget that 14 states across the country including wisconsin have introduced and or passed proposals to roll back child labor protections over the past couple of years i mean there's also the report and like the guy said you know these reports can't be taken at face value because most of the time they're not reported especially for like migrant workers the the children who work in fields and and all of those things but the afl has a a death on the job report where they reported that in uh 2021 that 350 workers under the age of 25 died on the work on the job including 24 who were younger than 18 years of age and like the these are beyond tragedies and again these are definitely undercounts definitely undercounts a thousand percent because especially for the people working under 18 because like as as that quote mentioned none none of the companies involved are going to report that because they don't want it to be publicized so so much of that employment is happening under the table anyway that it becomes impossible for people to track down the statistics and another thing that the article was talking about was about oh osha's getting involved we are going to have oh OSHA look into it. We know that OSHA doesn't do anything. What is it? The is it fifteen thousand dollars is the maximum like thing that they can penalize mm-hmm. people or pen, penalize companies for for killing people. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, the only way you ever see those big massive fines is they're a they're like a pile of yeah. of of a ton of smaller fines on top of each other. Yeah, the individual max for any one penalty is fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, and so when that comes down, you got to remember that Mikey had five brothers and seven sisters, and I, damn it. I can read it if you want. No, I can do it. And I just want to read a little excerpt from his obituary. Michael attended Florence High School, where he played football, basketball, baseball, and soccer. He enjoyed fishing, hunting, spending time with his family, and hanging out with his friends and his dog, Buckley. Michael was helpful, thoughtful, humorous, selfless, hardworking, loving, and the absolute best son, brother, uncle, and friend. That's from the obituary of a 16-year-old kid. 
who died so that some mill owner could pay him less. And so that that family could make enough money to keep living in this horrible fucking system. And it's just one example of many. <sighs> yeah, um, and I mean, you know, this sort of thing, uh, I mean, it's just similar to the story with, uh, you know, uh, the labor organizer in Bangladesh, uh, Shahidul Islam. That it's like, it, you know, we don't, report on these stories because we want to, you know, manipulate people emotionally. And, but like it, it's really important to like occasionally come back to like what the like actual stakes of this stuff is, because it's like, uh, we want workers to have unions so that they get better wages and benefits. A hundred percent. We, that is absolutely one of the big things that we want to win out of the labor movement. And we want to build unions, you know, so that we can, have the ability to, you know, maybe have some chance of having a voice politically and eventually towards building for a new society. But like, we also want unions because like, it's a matter of life or death, like for so many people, because when you're by alone, like when you don't have a union on a job in this country, you have no protections whatsoever, especially if you're a child, like you, you might as well not have a friend in the world. <laughs> like the, everything in this system is designed to strip you of any protections whatsoever in that scenario. And the only way you ever have any, the only way you actually can stop a company from hiring kids, not just, you know, protecting them while they're there, which is you know worthwhile endeavor in and of itself, but stopping it from happening in the first place and stopping the conditions that create so many of these so-called accidental deaths, which again, the vast majority of accidental deaths are not accidental. They could easily have been prevented. Even if there was no, you know, intent, there is always the absence of effort to prevent. And that is itself, you know, a form of intent there. And that's why, you know, at the end of the day, we need all that other stuff too, but it's like, we need unions because the only people that protect workers on the job is each other. Mm-hmm. And, and and so like, that's like, there, there's nothing ever good. There can't be, you know, to come out of a story like this. It's just horrors. Yeah. I but mean, the it's next a reminder. Time, yeah. The next time somebody tells you that like, you know, having teens work is like good for them. It builds character. It's like good for the economy or it's good for, uh, anybody really, you should you should you know get pretty visibly upset with them and call them a couple of uh, relatively, you know don't call them like a horrible name or anything, but maybe like a moron or something, and and rub their face in the in the fucking statistics that we do have as incomplete as they are, because even just having the uh, statistical tip of the iceberg here, I mean it's shocking, it's fucking shocking how many children are injured and die on the job uh, every single day. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to try and transition to another story here. And and one that like this, I know this may seem like a bit of a jarring transition, but, you know, Lena pointed out at the beginning of this story that like one of the most common places that we see mm-hmm. child injuries, child deaths, I mean, just child acts, again, accidents in air quotes is in agriculture. And so one piece of actual good news that we have lately 
is that there's been an expansion of organizing in agriculture lately alongside the expansion of organizing um, you know, more broadly in the U.S. And that's involved the UFW, you know, the United Farm Workers, expanding beyond you know, their traditional stronghold of California and starting to organize workers in New York so that we can have places you know, that have organized agricultural workers who could fight back against conditions like this. Yeah. Well, and uh, I mean, we're going to get into why it's particularly difficult, but uh, just a little background on the United Farm Workers. I mean, originally when they were at their peak of strength, they had around 60,000 members. This was during the Cesar Chavez era of the 1970s. But since then, due to, I mean, check out our decline of American unionism series, but uh, they're down to about 6,000 members at this point. And they recently were able to organize five different farms in New York State, uh, four apple farms and one vegetable farm, uh, Waffler Farms, uh, Cahoon Farms, Porpiglia? Uh, A and J Kirby and Lynette uh, Farms uh, that brought uh, 500 new members into the UFW, which is a an 8% increase, which uh, kind of sucks how high that percentage is for the amount of workers. But it's a really good thing to see that they're really getting out there and doing this sort of organizing. No, yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a big win. I mean, you're you're absolutely right that like you know the fall off in numbers, which is of course, I'm sure partially, very small amount driven by automation, but I would imagine largely deregulation and anti labor laws and all the other bullshit that makes it so hard for farm workers to organize. Uh, yeah, consolidation. I mean, uh, many mm, of yep. these. Uh, I mean. Because the NLRB or the NLRA doesn't actually include farm workers, every single union, besides in states where there are special laws, have to, they require voluntary recognition, which means that basically you have to strike your workplace mm-hmm. for recognition. And a lot of these workers are so exploited that they can't go on strike. They often, if they are, they do go on strike, they get replaced and not brought back. But I'll, I'll get back to that in just a moment. Uh, yeah, like just real quick, like, and the only reason California has that special law, CALRA, their version of the Labor Rights like, Relations Act, is because of the struggle of workers like the UFW to say, hey, yeah, we know the federal government excludes uh, agricultural workers, but most of the agriculture is grown here, and we're not going to fucking accept that, so you guys need to pass a better law here. Yeah, well, and uh, California has passed a, a new law recently. Uh, but I want to talk first about these the New York law that actually passed four years ago, which uh, is called the Farm Labor Fair the Farm Laborers Fair Labor Practices Act, which basically I mean there wasn't a ton to it, but it did allow card check, which uh, is what I mean a lot of this article was attributing this to, and I, I agree that uh, you know that card check is a huge aspect of this i do think that when it came to the way that the articles were kind of slobbering over the politicians who passed the this law i think that that was kind of gross and uh you know but i i also you know we do have to make sure to to take into consideration that card check is a big deal because it's what's Mm -hmm. it is what made it so that these workers didn't have that massive amount of intimidation 
that, you know, comes from, you know, the classic organizing practices. I mean, many of these workers, uh, in at least at these farms, were Jamaican or Mexican. And, I mean, it is clear from their descriptions of the work conditions on why card check is important. Uh, we have a quote from Owen uh, Salmon, or Salmon. It's probably Salmon, isn't it? No? I don't know. Cool name either way. Yeah. A <laughs> Jamaican worker at uh, Waffler Farms who said, quote, if a worker speaks up, you can lose your job. If you don't speak up, you keep your job, end quote. And and these jobs, I mean, losing your job doesn't actually mean that you're fired on the spot often, but what happens is you're told to stay home without pay for a day, which many workers, that's a, lo- that's a big deal, even in just, mm-hmm. you know, that aspect. But... Uh, it often also means that you just won't be brought back in following seasons. So they, they can be like, oh, we actually found someone who's a better fit. And so they can, you know, kind of have that, that what modicum of, of deniability of retaliation for any sort of even just agitation, not even union organizing. Talking back to a boss could be considered something that would just that would be justified for this particular thing from an employer's standpoint. Yeah, I mean, before I get back into the rest of the notes, I will just say, like, you know, every time you read about the experiences of, of farm workers, the folks who actually do the labor and actually, you know, pick and prepare all the food that we all eat, like, every time I read this, I'm always just like, why do we have the like farm owners again? I'm like, what what are they providing? Like, why aren't these just collective farms? Like, you know, I you know, ideologically and politically understand why, but it's just like these these are the folks that know what they're doing. Yeah, like, <laughs> they're the ones doing the work. They know best how to handle the land. Like that, be the easiest thing in the world. You change a piece of paper, give them the farm, let them run it. They'd run it better. You mm-hmm. get better produce. And they'd actually, you know, be treated like human fucking beings. Yeah. But um, I mean, another, and I mean, kind of to that point. I mean, we have another quote from Junior Johnson, a another Jamaican worker at Waffler Farms, uh, who said that one reason you know, talked about one of the reasons that he backed the unionization, uh, which was the immense pressure to work faster, saying, "quote We have no say. We have no rights." If we go to the morning meeting and a worker wants to complain, the boss says, I don't want to hear it. We have no one besides the union to stand up for us. We have to keep our mouths closed. And then uh, continuing that, he also said in response to the kind of the classic union busting tactic, which was about dues saying, oh, you're going to have to pay 3% of your wages. He said, quote, because of what we go through daily, I'd be happy to pay more than 3% just to have someone stand up for us. End quote. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Honestly, you know, I've been thinking about this when we talk about this article. It's like, you know, what what is like the interim step, you know, between the horror we have now and collectivized agriculture? Um, and, you know, this would take a monumental effort. It's not, it's the sort of thing that like isn't going to happen without class struggle. Um, but, you know, because this is one of those things like that, because so many of these workers functionally end up being, you know, temporary laborers, day laborers, or, you know, seasonal workers so often. And because of that, they don't have permanent contracts. And now, of course, you're not going to, you're unlikely to be able to get so many of the farmers to accept permanent contracts year in, year out when you have a planting season. But the ILWU and other longshoremen work with irregular work schedules all the time. 
and they have union hiring halls so that when somebody needs labor, they're able to dispatch them on union terms. Mm-hmm. And so you're able to have irregular work schedules, but you're also able to have really good jobs and able to keep pe- everyone getting regular work by distributing the work through the union, which I feel like is something you could do with seasonal work and and get around so many of these problems. Now, of course, it's going you're going to need the whole labor movement, you know, in, in individual states to fight for that. But that's the sort of thing that, you know, might actually help. But as a first step, you know, as this story was talking about, that law in New York that allowed for card check, the CalRA in, in California, uh, and, and last year's new law where they put in a card check law in place, uh, you know, those are all important steps in the right direction uh, that have allowed, you know, these, these, these extra 500 workers in New York so far to unionize, which is re- a really good step in the right direction. And I mean, like, to show the limitations of CalRA before the implementation of card check, over the past, what what is this, since 2016, uh, that's seven years, there have only been six union elections held in California, uh, like, on far- like, in agricultural settings, like, Ugh. using CalRA. That's how difficult it is to even organize with a basic NLRA style, NLRB style election process. Yeah, it's fucked up. So uh, really glad to see this is a big step in the right direction with these 500 workers. Well, and the fact, though, that now it's card check all over New York and, you know, it's going to be card check all over California. Like a big part of the reason I wanted to talk about this story was just like, to get the story out there because the more we can tell other workers who tell other workers who tell farm workers Mm -hmm. that in those two states there's card check because that's a huge part of the union busting is just making sure workers don't know about this because like that 500 workers who unionize with card check that could easily become 5,000 workers become 10,000 workers and so like this is a really good step in the right direction and i know like you'd also mentioned lena like in in the notes here that ufcw and our wdsu have also started organizing although not quite with the, the level so far they've they've got about 125 workers organized but the fact that these gains have been made is such a big step in the right direction and serve as an example to show other workers like it's not just a law there are workers who have actually done it. They've succeeded. They have unionized, and you can too. Hell yeah. Well, we love to emphasize agricultural workers on this show, and another group of workers that uh, a lot of folks tend to not think about as much but who are extremely crucial is academic workers. And for this story, we're going to be heading over to Stanford. So one of the biggest labor stories in the last couple of years has been the upsurge in organizing by graduate student workers specifically in response to soaring tuition and housing costs with little to no raises in pay. And this week we saw a massive labor win in academia when the grad student workers of Stanford voted in another lopsided victory to join the UE by a margin of 94%. Uh, Only 38 of the approximately 1,700 workers voted against unionizing. These workers joined the ranks of those at MIT, Yale, USC, and the University of Chicago, among the many elite schools that no one ever thought would unionize who have started to do so overwhelmingly this year. Yeah. No, I mean, this was such a great story to see, especially because there are so many annoying tech bros mm-hmm. who came out of Stanford oh, yeah. who hate unions. Uh, like, look at uh, basically the whole tech sector. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so the fact, and it's it's kind of the same Schadenfreude as like Yale, where it's just like this is these are places that like the money that comes into it come from some of the most anti-union people in the world. It's the same thing with University of Chicago, whose basically whole mission is dedicated to undermining unions. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that all of these workers have said, actually, you know what, we do need a union. Fuck the old assholes who run this place. Uh, I don't know. I get a little uh, gratification out of that. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's pretty badass. So during their drive, these workers echoed many of the same concerns over pitiful, insufficient stipends, lack of childcare. And- and dependent healthcare resources and unaffordable housing that we have heard from academic workers all over the country. Justine Modica, a history PhD, told the Stanford Daily, quote, there were a lot of folks who were actually unable to afford the cost of securing childcare that would have made it possible to do things like go to conferences, write articles, and do all the different things that you need to do in order to become an academic and to get an academic job, which many of us are aiming for. End quote. I should say they're aiming for. Isn't that expensive? Explicitly, the purpose of getting into academia and the fact that that is like had been functionally made largely impossible for almost all of the people involved by the university is just frankly staggering. Uh, because yeah. it's like, you know, people will make the joke that it's like, oh, well, you know, you go into academia to teach, and it's like, well, what if you can't even fucking do that anymore, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, no, I mean, it's and specifically, you know, this it, it, we're. Uh, their uh, history PhD. I know, like uh, Nate Holder, in friend of mm-hmm. the show, who we interviewed a while ago. I, I, you know, follow him on on Twitter. And one of the things that I'll see, you know, that he's talking about with a lot of folks is just how difficult it is for history PhD students to find jobs mm-hmm. these days. Just there just aren't any. Yeah, like there have been the liquidation of so much of 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 like the humanities and just huge swaths of higher education in favor of you know more efficient, more productive in giant air quotes majors, AKA more the, the sorts of things that companies are chafing and having to pay high salaries for, and therefore want to churn out a lot more of so they can drop the price of labor. You know, it's so interesting because it's the history majors who are precisely the people who could tell you what is going to be the problem with that phenomenon pretty shortly. Here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> it's wild. So like, uh, immediately following their win, the Stanford Graduate Workers Union wasted no time and began sending out member surveys for bargaining priorities and to ask workers uh, to participate in the election of the bargaining team for their first contract. They emphasized that though Stanford fought to exclude some grad workers from the bargaining unit, that the union will fight for all of the grad workers, whether the school included them in the bargaining unit or not. In their email, SGWU said, quote, we will also fight for fellows who Stanford inclu- excluded from the initial vote. We consider fellows to be full members of our union and encourage fellows to run for the bargaining committee and fill out the bargaining survey, yeah. end quote. And I love that. Hell yeah. Like, this is, I'm like, this is showing a true dem- a demonstration that you, of a true understanding of solidarity. That it's like, it's solidarity isn't, it's like, it's not just because you're in my union or in my, like, it's like, it's a class thing. And it's like, they're co-workers. And so there's this arbitrary distinction Stanford's trying to throw there. Oh, they're a different kind of worker. They can't be in your union. They're very different or whatever. And it's like, what? we all work for Stanford. <laughs> they pay us a wage that we need to live. We sh- so fuck them. If they say you can't be in the union, who cares? Come be in the union anyway. You don't understand, <laughs> workers. We wrote down on this thing that you're actually all in worker group one, and you're all actually in worker group two, and we expect you to fight about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know, which is so great. And then the workers are just like, 
It's it's that no it's it, honestly you know what it is it's the meme where you have the group of people all talking and the yeah they're just like oh no you can't be together <laughs> and then, you know these workers are the ones with the giant thumb just like yeah that's great buddy and then they just go back to talking <laughs> all right so what are we gonna bargain for yeah. in our next meeting <laughs> yeah well so I anyway, guess congrats to these workers they kick ass yeah I guess speaking of memes because y'all are getting ahead of yourselves <laughs> here. Let's move into the meme review and, and get something some a little bit more lighthearted discussion about this sort of uh the sort of funny pictures. Uh this first one uh is ridiculous. It's a McDonald's mm-hmm. uh what I guess a a sign on the wall? Yeah, I keep debating whether this is a meme or reality being a meme. Because I know it's supposed to be, this is a picture of a real sign, and I can believe that. Managers are, of, of course, as we know, not the most uh, all-there people. Um, but, like, come on with this one. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, the McDonald's logo at the top. It says, we value you, your growth, and your contributions. And then right below that in big red letters, it says, this is a no-quit restaurant. Oh, wow. And then just below it, it says, because we feel that many situations can be resolved, it is a policy of the restaurant that uh, that an employee cannot quit until he or she talks to the restaurant manager or area supervisor. And then it provides, which are blanked out, the store manager and area supervisor's name and phone number. I also uh, love this. So it's like if I just walk out the door without consulting you... That's all paid time off, right? <laughs> well, well, no, exactly. I'm just like, okay, fine. I just won't tell anybody. I'm just going to leave. You're welcome to keep paying me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, just, it's so confusing. Well, to, I, like, because what, I don't, what, what do they think that sign means? Well, because <laughs> many situations can be resolved. You mean you're going to fucking pay me more? Yeah. Well, and also, yeah. like, part of what makes me believe this is real is that there's another sign below it where everything's just translated into Spanish. And, yes. you know, God bless Spanish cognates because it gives us these classic lines like, Este es un restaurante de no renunciar, which to my English speaking brain looks like this is a restaurant of no renunciation, which is like, <laughs> that really strikes the at the core of like what the message is here. They're like, you can't walk out of here. <laughs> this is, this McDonald's is a jail. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. And I mean, the, the sign like looks like the, like the, the it's design of the placard. Sign. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, this place is wild. I recommend everyone in that McDonald's quit immediately. And don't tell anyone because they say that they won't let you quit. So just leave. They'll keep paying you. That's what the sign says. Yeah, we refer to (laughs) DeShare Zone on this one. Just leave. You can walk out. Hit the bricks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then I also, I I don't know, I want to read the little uh, comment that I I had underneath the the original. It was, uh, this is a no-firing union because we feel that every dollar produced here is produced by the workers we have a policy <laughs> of controlling the work conditions and managers cannot fire workers without fully discussing it with the union and that's the way that's the kind of sign that i would prefer to read <laughs> yeah so th- this next one is a, a modification of a very common format the one where you know there's the boardroom meeting and, and there's the angry boss and then there's he asks for suggestions and there's the two people who give the normal suggestion and the one guy who says the thing that's smart and then they throw him out the window. But this one's a little different. So, you know, first panel, boss, we're understaffed. What do we do to fix this? <laughs> Which is also a very funny question to be asking, uh, but is the sort of question that a boss would be stupid enough to ask. Uh, <laughs> and so the response, offer a $100 sign-on bonus. 
force our staff to work doubles. Uh, pay well and stop scaring off new hires by overworking our current staff. And then extremely mad boss, I would throw you out of the window if we weren't so understaffed. <laughs> and, and, then, and then this Mark, I just, I know. And then the last panel where he is normally thrown out of the window is just nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which this is, by the way, is an illustration of one of the long-term tried and true, if a bit individualist strategies for survival at work, which is making yourself indispensable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ideally, you would be indispensable and totally inscrutable. Anybody above <laughs> yes. you should basically not understand what you do at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But be terrified of losing your skill set. Yeah, you should take one day off and everything should fall apart at least once a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just keep them on their toes. Yeah. Uh, the next one is a poster, uh, a, a UPS poster, uh, well, I guess I should say a Teamsters poster, and it's got a big tank on it with the <laughs> barrel pointed directly at, like, well, not directly, but like just off to the side of like coming at you, kind of in a. If you had 3D glasses, you would see the barrel coming, you know, in your direction. But it says, "It's time we give the UPS Teamsters a tank." That's right. And it's really just at the. It looks good. I don't yeah. know. There's not a ton more to say about this one besides this is a well put together meme. We're gonna put Sean O'Brien in the fucking exoskeleton thing from Alien. We're gonna put Sean Fain in a fucking <laughs> Gundam if you don't give us what we want. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. I know he's UAW, yeah, I- but whatever. You get the picture. <laughs> I also love that they used a picture of a of a SU-152, which is like one of the cooler tank destroyers from World War II. Hell yeah! Oh, uh, is this one of those anti-tank tanks mm-hmm. you hear so much yeah, about? That's why it doesn't. Yeah, why it doesn't have a turret <laughs> because like it's not there to take cities or like garrison posts. It has one job: blowing up other tanks. Yeah. Point them at the other tanks, and it will blow them up. And so you have all the oh oh we made all the Panzers there. So the best tank? Nope, wrong. This thing blew the shit out of them. Yeah, <laughs> it's a point and click adventure where the only thing you do is <laughs> use gun on tank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> This next, John, I don't know if you want to do this one. I feel like oh yeah, this is a this this fits your vibe very well. I love this because you got like a really really tall white dude with a uh, Ed Hardy ass facial haircut, wearing a ball mm-hmm. cap and a um, uh, what is this uh, Nike. Nike? Yeah, Nike shirt it, and, and the Air. It's an Air Jordan. It's an shirt. Air Jordan shirt. Okay, and he's carrying like an ancient boombox from like 1999 uh, on his phone, and above it it says, "I yelled good morning, officer," and he looked up, la- crying, laughing emoji. You ain't fooling nobody. And I love this because it's just like it. Once you look like. Treat your brain like a neural network and just Google image search undercover cop one time. Just scroll through like six pages and for the rest of your life, they will be instantly identifiable to you. There, there's so much wrong about his his look because the thing is, well, the funny thing about these memes is they're all, they're basically like a leftist to rate my fit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the thing that always stands out to me so much is the fully. Fully cool. pulled up crew socks. Mm-hmm. Also, also the deeply coordinated because like the shoes are Nike. Those are Air Jordans. He's wearing an Air Jordan shirt. The watch is really thick and bulky. Yeah, uh, 
I mean, like, I don't, and the socks max, max, match the shirt. What dude do you know matches his shirt to his socks? Not a like, lot of like, guys. Look, NYPD, <laughs> I don't, I hate to give you guys tips, but if you want this to be believable, you need five or six of these dudes and they all need to know how to break dance. And then maybe <laughs> we won't think they're police officers. <laughs> but of course, because they are police officers, they will fuck that up. Too. Oh, they will definitely <laughs> hurt themselves if they break dance. So I would encourage them to try. <laughs> <laughs> then, Absolutely. To round out our meme review, I love to put a, a slightly more upbeat one in here, which uh, this is a uh, a tiny snack comic where there are, I guess these are dogs or I think so. Yeah, they're they're they're, they're quadruped mammals. <laughs> yeah, and they're in like this old west town, and uh, what well, they're facing off at high noon or whatever. And there's a, the the darker. Uh, now we're gonna call them dogs. The the darker dog and the and the the lighter dog, and uh, they're saying in the second panel, "This town ain't big enough for the two of us." And then the darker dog says, "Fraid you're right, partner." And then the the fourth panel is them building a house together because there wasn't enough room for the two of them, and so they built a house and made more room. <laughs> <laughs> we love to see it, folks. <laughs> I like Tiny Snack Comics. Yeah, yeah Tiny Snack just, Comics is good. This is like the opposite vibe of just looking at that undercover cop. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Tiny Snack Comics kind of gives me the same vibes as this comic I used to read in high school called Butter Safe. I don't know if it's still going, but it was like a much more low-rent kind of absurdist version of what we have going on here. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, I guess with that, we're going to wrap for this episode. And we just want to remind everyone that we are an entirely listener-supported show. And so any support that you give us, we mean that means so much to us, whether you're sharing our episodes, writing reviews, or supporting us on Patreon, which gets you access to all of our bonus content, including our cybernetics series, so you can understand our talk on variety earlier. And that's, you know, five bucks a month is you get so many episodes. There's really just so much content in there at this point. Uh, also, jump in the Discord. You don't have to be, a, you know, a patron or anything for that. Come hang out with us. The news channel in there is always just, like, filled with what's going on in labor news. Uh, and, you know, I guess also follow us in all the places. There's Twitter. where We're at Work Stoppage Pod. We're on Blue Sky at Work Stoppage. There's, you know, follow John on Twitter at uh, Facebook Villain. And, I mean, all the other links are at WorkStoppagePod.com. Uh, listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to game, Red Game Table. And, as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. Please, could you stay away to share my grief? It's such a lovely day to have to always feel this way. And the time that I was suffering
Rip, 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 rip. 